Hello and welcome to the JPRAS Journal Club in association with Plasta and Icoplast. Join us monthly to hear from the authors themselves about their article in the latest issue of JPRAS with critical appraisal and discussion from plastic surgery trainees and experts from around the world. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy this month's episode. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us for this month's episode of the JPRAS Journal Club. I'm your host, Demetrius Rhesus, and I'm a plastic surgery registrar working in London, and I'm president of our UK trainees association called Plaster. Today we'll be reviewing and discussing an interesting editorial article recently published in JPRAS discussing breast implant registries. It is entitled, Moving Breast Implant Registries Forward. Are they fair and functional? It is written by a large group of eminent authors, and we're very honored to be joined by five of them today. Firstly, Professor Mark Muro is Deputy Chair in the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at the Erasmus Medical Centre in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. He's also Head of Oncologic Reconstructive Surgery Unit and specialises in reconstructive microsurgery of the breast and head and neck. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Muro. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. I'm very honoured and excited to be a part in this journal club and look forward to a great discussion. Next, Professor Birgit Stark is a plastic and reconstructive surgeon working in the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. She specializes also in microsurgical breast and head and neck reconstruction and established the breast implant registry in Sweden in 2012. She is also the president-elect and the scientific co-chair of the European Association of the Societies of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Stark. Thank you very much. I'm very proud to be with you tonight and it's an honor to be with you and I hope we will have a great webinar tonight. Thank you very much. And next, Professor Ingrid Hopper. She's a consultant physician and clinical pharmacologist at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne in Australia. She's also a researcher at the Department of Epidemiology and Preventative Medicine at Monash <clears throat> University in Melbourne and is also directly involved in researching the Australian Breast Device Registry for the last few years. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Hopper. Thanks very much for having me. It's uh, in Melbourne at the moment and I'm on my way to work, but looking forward to a great discussion. Thank you. And next we're joined by Dr. Claudia Bargon. She's the first author of the article and she's also a PhD candidate in oncoplastic breast surgery at the St. Antonius Hospital in the Netherlands. And she's also the editor of the 4P Plastic Surgery Journal email service. Thank you again for joining us, Claudia. Thank you so much for introducing us. It's an honor to be here tonight and a very relevant topic, so I'm really looking forward to tonight. And next we're joined as an author this time, and in fact the senior author of the paper, none other than Dr. Hine Rakhorst. He is a founding board member of Icoplast and Icobra, and a specialist plastic and reconstructive microsurgeon working in the Medish Spectrum Hospital in Twente in the Netherlands. Thank you as always for joining us, Hine. Thanks, Demi. And next, we're joined by Professor Andrew Hart. He is the Editor-in-Chief of JPRAS and a Consultant Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeon in the Cannesburn Plastic Surgery Unit in Glasgow, Scotland. And also from JPRAS, we're joined by Ms. Karen Lindsay, who's a Senior Plastic Surgery Registrar in Scotland and the Social Media Editor for JPRAS. Thanks as always, Karen. Thanks, Denny. And last but not least, we're joined by Mr. Ben Baker, who will present the article today. Mr. Baker is the immediate past president of Plaster and a senior plastic surgery registrar working in the Manchester University Hospital. He is also a Health Education Northwest UK Leadership Fellow, and we're very honoured to be joined by him today. So thanks always, Ben. Thanks, Demi. It's an honour to be amongst such uh, esteemed company. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Ben to present a summary of today's article. 
Okay, well, thanks very much for the invitation to present the article and open the discussion. What's both a very relevant and important topic in current clinical practice? This, of course, was an editorial, and so this is more of an article summary than critical analysis, but I think it's important to point out a few of the characteristics that are pertinent to the discussion to start off with. The authorship was international. There were named authors from all 12 registries that were cited within the article. Um, it was multidisciplinary, and that wasn't just including plastic surgeons, but also including those involved in the regulation of medical devices. For example, there was authorship from the Medical and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, the MHRA, in the UK, and the Italian equivalent as well, and also representatives from the world of epidemiology. It was clearly uh, very collaborative in its nature, and there were no conflicts of interest or funding declared. So, of course, the majority of those dialing in this evening will be familiar with breast implant controversies that have occurred over the past few decades. And concerns first raised their head in the 80s, really, around the ability of silicon implants to cause autoimmune disease. Of course, initially they were initially banned in, by the FDA and the USA before their reinstatement later in 92. And since then, there was an independent review group in the UK that was set up to examine the evidence for claims that silicon had adverse health effects and, in fact, recommended a national implant registry as far back as 1998. Since then, we've had further developments, which you'll be aware of, in the form of PIP, implant scandal, where non-medical grade silicon was used in devices. And subsequently, you'll be aware of the social media frenzy around breast implant illness. Subsequently, science has discovered BIA ALCL. So, the question, therefore, of whether clinical quality registries were really necessary wasn't the focus of this article. The article already states that they provide population-level data. They're really valuable for identification and recall of an underperforming device. They have the ability to carry out regional and national audit and provide data for medical research. And they allow the identification of patients rapidly and accurately when a problem device is identified. And perhaps most importantly, they provide the ability to generate objective data in a world where subjective opinions are increasingly propagated by the media and social media. And so the question of this article really was, how can we improve the clinical quality registries that are currently available? And the article looked at this from the perspective of both those providing the data to the registry, that's the clinicians, and of those using the registry, that's the external stakeholders. So from the clinician's perspective, the recommendations were largely born out of a study of clinical users of the Dutch implant registry and were classified as related to interface, user-friendliness, uh, automation and reusability of data. So in terms of the interface and user-friendliness, this related to the ease of use of online interface through which data is entered. For example, by making forms simple, ensuring clear labelling, ensuring user support is available, and by using the native language of the clinician. Automation refers to using barcodes to recognise and register specific devices, as currently happens in the US registry, or by enabling registries to automatically pull device details based on the manufacturer and a reference number, as happens in Italy. And this would reduce the workload of the clinician in registering devices. Furthermore, usability or reusability of the data refers to data being as complete as possible by utilising opt-out systems rather than opt-in systems for patients and making it a legal requirement to register devices. Uh, clinicians should also be able to extract their own personal data and use it to benchmark themselves internationally. 
So how could the registries be improved from the point of view of external stakeholders? Uh, the article cites a number of potential improvements and uses the FAIR principles. Those are findable, accessible, interoperable and reusable data. So in terms of being findable, this refers to data in a registry able to be searched as a resource by either a unique patient identifier or a unique device identifier. Accessibility refers to data being able to be retrieved by its identifier using a standard protocol, whilst respecting confidentiality of patient data. Interoperability means that registries should use a shared language that is understandable by both machines and people. And the data being reusable refers to it being easily understandable and linked to other data sources. And automated linkage to other CQRs, such as oncological registries and to other breast implant registries internationally, is one possible mechanism cited in the article. Of course, there are a number of other factors that need to be considered, such as data completeness, and there is a fine balance to be struck between the burden of data entry and the information that can be retrieved from a data bank in order to optimise clinician participation. And the article uh, suggests that we could look at ways of integrating uh, the registry with online patient records to ease that process. Of course, the engagement of surgeons and trainees is vital, and the article actually suggests inviting them to an international conference where we would potentially present some of the data using interactive dashboards with benchmarking, provision for researchers. But all of this needs to be done whilst ensuring that the individual clinician level data is not exposed and potentially compromising their willingness to enter their data into a, into a registry. The integration of patient reported outcomes is cited as important, and this will allow the registry to map clinical outcomes and produce longitudinal data over time. Funding, of course, is an essential and, and is challenging to address, and this should be sustainable and independent from industry. It's variable between registries currently, with some being government funded and others imposing a leverage on patients or their insurance companies. So in terms of reflections, having read this article, I would say that having read this, the importance of CQRs really is unequivocal. And the question really is, um, how do we optimize them? And all of the improvements that have been suggested in the article seem to point towards improving the ease of which data is either put into the registry or retrieved from the registry. Success of the registry, however you're going to define that, but in this article we are looking at success as being defined as percentage of uptake, that doesn't seem to really correlate with a single parameter, such as whether the registry is opt-out or opt-in, the volume of implants inserted in the country per year, how long the registry has been running, or whether it's involved in the public or private sector. And there seems to be much variability between registries. And I think the article points to ironing out uh, the difference between them and, and how we can all, all improve in what would be, of course, a collaborative manner. I think that's the ultimate conclusion of the article, is that to drive improvements, collaboration is required. And of course, the authors cite ICABRA as an example of that, and I've absolutely no doubt that will come up in the discussion this evening. Thanks so much, Ben. That was a great summary. You really picked out all the main points of the article there. I completely agree with your final point there that collaboration is the ultimate key. And you can see that from the authors themselves and the way that the article is written. I'll now hand over to Karen to ask you a couple of questions, just furthering on your reflections at the end there. And then we'll bring in the authors as well. 
Great, thanks to me. So this is the critical appraisal part of the webinar, although it's hard to critically appraise an editorial. <laughs> um, so we're going to use the CASP guidelines kind of to inform some questions here. So as you pointed out, Ben, um, it is an editorial, but it does have a question and answer sort of framework to it. So I think you've really nicely already um, outlined what the question was, but if you maybe want to recap that for the listeners and then just talk to us about how fully the, the authors answered the question that they've posed in their piece. Yeah, I think the question was was quite broad, but it was quite clearly how do we improve the current registries that, that are available and how do we work together? And I think the authors answer it really well within the confines of an editorial by looking at the views of multiple stakeholders and ultimately, presumably, with the aim of stimulating international discussion and collaboration. And hopefully, that's what we're here to do this evening. So I think they've achieved what they set out to do. Excellent. And glad to see that the publisher is facilitating the aims of the, the piece by hosting the webinar. <laughs> so um, the next question is whether you identified any potential biases or confounders that are beyond the scope of the editorial, but might be relevant to our readers and viewers tonight. Yeah, I think, you know, in an editorial, a piece like this is always going to be some inherent bias in that all of the authors I've got a common aim, really, which is to, I would imagine, to seek registry improvement, presumably in the best interests of their patients. And so in edi any editorial like this, I guess there's, there's always a theme of citing positive aspects of individual international registries in order to highlight potential improvements and positive changes for others. But clearly, within, within all of the registries cited, there are some that are doing better um, in terms of uptake than others and I think it would be really nice to draw out more about what the reasons for that may be in order to help inform improvements within other registries and perhaps that's something that might come out this evening a bit more as well. Great. Thanks, Ben. And so the last question for you is the article sort of accepts the premise that implant registries are ethically required and from a regulatory point of view are very useful um, but the authors do briefly touch on some opposing views that have come up in the literature previously and so I just wanted you to clarify for the people listening tonight how they address those opposing views and what elements of those might be most useful for for everyone at home listening. To yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So they, they do. They, the authors do allude to the views of, of some critics of implant registries, who, of course, argue that it's a significant administrative burden, comes at a high cost, complex to fund, and potential issues with confidentiality and governance. I think the authors deal with this quite well at the start of the article by citing successful outcomes from other registries, such as the work done around ALCL and the Dutch registry, outcomes of registries outside of our own sphere of clinical practice, such as cardiovascular registries and the National Joint Registry in the UK. However, I think, you know, there are some alternative opposing views that are well documented in the literature and issues that, that need to be tackled with re regards to the the registry, some have cited confusion around the identity of whether an implant registry is really a device registry, trying to collect purely device data, or whether it is a registry pertaining to clinical outcomes and whether PROMs should or should not be part of that. And even whether a registry is, is needed at all, given that ALCL 
for example, has its own registry of cases. So I think these are all issues that that need to be ironed out. For me, having read the article, I perhaps had some of my own inherent bias in already thinking that I'm already sold on the fact that a registry is necessary. But I am aware, and of course the authors will be aware, that that there are people that feel differently. And I think that uh, the idea of the editorial wasn't really to bring those views out, because it was how to improve the current registries rather than should we have a registry at all. But I think that they were mentioned and acknowledged. Yeah, I agree. I thought that was a really um, nice couple of lines in the in the piece that pointed me to some interesting reading. I was exactly the same when I read it and I was like, yeah, of course, this totally makes sense. Why would you do it any other way? And then yeah. it's always useful to consider the other side of the coin. So I thought that was nice to bring in. Yeah, really interesting discussion and a yeah, very balanced discussion there. So thank you so much. We'll bring in the authors now because we're honoured to be joined by so many of the group today. And I think I'll just ask Hine initially to tell us a little bit about how the editorial came to being and perhaps just a bit of context around ICOBRA itself and uh, some of the authors perhaps that can't be with us today and their contributions to this big collaboration. Yeah, Demi, uh, thank you. Uh, well, it's interesting. First of all, we should acknowledge Babette Becher. She's a clinical uh, PhD student, and she basically glued the DBIR together over the last couple of years, and has also done a lot of work for ICOBRA and for this uh, piece as well. But well, ICOBRA is basically a collaboration that's founded by the Australasian Foundation for Plastic Surgery, and it's set up to share knowledge and data sets for breast implants registries worldwide. And it basically started with meeting every now and then somewhere around the world. And from it, a really strong friendships and collegial collaborations have started since. So this is why we're here together with such a large group of authors. And I think it's it's brought us a lot. And the aim is that we learn from our mistakes and to listen to what we hear from the international field and how we can perceive it. So that's why we put very consciously the, the debate, because we're not all... Uh, in the world of plastic surgery or, or general surgery or, or gynecology, sometimes in favor of this extra administrative burden. So uh, we, we appreciate that there's, there's a toll to pay, but we do think it's uh, an important way forward. And the aim was to really illustrate this, where we are now and how can we improve to make it easier and better for surgeons worldwide, not only plastic surgeons, but that deal with uh, breast implants. Leading on from that, I might ask Professor Miro, firstly, just based on your experience with the Dutch breast implant registry and also with regards to ICOBRA as well, um, we know that the implant registry in in the Netherlands is a very successful one um, and you can see that in the numbers of uptake within the registry as well. And what factors do you think are most important contributing towards the success of the Dutch breast implant registry and taking that forwards into ICOBRA as well? Yeah, we were lucky in the Netherlands that uh, breast implant surgery is only being performed by plastic surgeons. So we were lucky that we could, as a, I used to be the, the, the president of the society and Hine as well. And so with the, our board in our society, we were able to make it mandatory for our members to start registering all these important characteristics about the breast implants because that's what it's all about, that we want to improve our care, the quality of our care for our patients and also the safety. And the sad thing is that before 
we all started collecting this data in the registries. If you look at the, the literature, which has been around, there's not much good sound scientific evidence about implant performance, strangely enough. And although they have been around since the early 60s of the last century. And so still, we do not really know what the exact incidence of rupture rates is uh, and if there are differences between types, brands, indications for surgery, what have you. And, that's, that's, and, and patients, they ask about this and they want to know and they, they ought to know. So that's, I think, one of my main motivators to start collecting the data because I want to know and I want to do better and I want to be able to, to share this knowledge with patients and all other stakeholders. And so how do you engage then all your colleagues? Because not everybody feels the same about this and especially not if you have to register things. So you, first of all, you want to enthusiasm them and try to get them on board that they all, everybody wants to, to be good or the best. So that's why I think benchmarking works very well because you can identify yourself and compare yourself to your peers. And nobody wants to be hanging uh, at the bottom of some kind of chart. So that's always a good motivator to start doing better. The other thing is that the data can be used by anyone. If you, we have this procedure about, you can uh, request data for scientific research. And this, 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 this procedure you have to go through. And it's, it's not really difficult because our basic uh, attitude is yes, uh, unless there are other research projects or the data are not in the, in the data set, that is not possible to, to answer your scientific question. And the other thing is that now we, we make every year, we make an annual report. And thanks to uh, Hini's enthusiasm and, 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 and perseverance, we are now able to publish these annual reports on PubMed. And now we also are going to make everyone who is registering a collaborative author. So that's another thing to try to engage everyone to keep on registering. And I think these are a few points which, which, which other countries can maybe or other registries can benefit from. Because to my mind, these are, can be powerful motors to, uh, to get everyone on board. Leading on from that, I think I'll just ask Professor Stark, uh, you're in quite an interesting position in having been involved in the Swedish implant registry since its inception, and also now as a president-elect of the European Association of the Aesthetic Plastic Surgery Societies. What, from your perspective, have you found as the key ways in which you can get your colleagues throughout Europe to engage with these implant registries? Starting from Sweden, from the perspective of Sweden, I have to say we have a situation that is a little bit different from the Netherlands because breast implants are operated not only by plastic surgeons, they are operated by general surgeons, breast surgeons. This is a big problem. And in Sweden, we have the opt-out system that is very nice. But it should be mandatory, in my opinion, from the health, healthcare system that people, all our colleagues using breast implants, should give the data to our registry. So this make a little problem when you are talking about compliance and completeness. 
And from our perspective, we have seen during the years stable values in registering and stable values in scientific component uh, concerning rupture, concerning capsular contracture, and so on, because we have uh, high-performing units, and they uh, enter the data every year. So we are seeing a constant value of our data, but this is not a hundred percent compliance. And I feel to have a real hundred percent compliance, like in orthopedic uh, registries, I think it should be a mandatory system in some way. But I feel our registry reflects real data during the time that make it a certain value for Europe and for ICOBRIA. Thanks so much. Yeah, I personally think as well, having it mandatory and monitoring the use of these devices is really, really important and enabling the data to be as robust as possible. It's interesting, yeah, in the article that you discussed about the opt-out system, taking it a step further as a mandatory process mm. is a, a very interesting point as well. I'd like to ask Professor Hopper actually about a slightly different point to that, just that we discussed in the article as well, and Ben's mentioned already with regards to the PROMs. And I know you've been interested and involved in researching these and how they relate to the implant registries as well. And I wondered if you could give us um, your thoughts on how best to integrate the PROMs in the in the registries and the importance of this, perhaps. Yeah, so the PROM that we use in the Australian Breast Device Registry is called the Breast QIF or Implant Surveillance Module. And this was created with Andrea Pusick from Harvard University, who was the creator of the Breast Q. So what we did is, is we looked at her large data set of patients with their PROM and also with the outcome. And we determined the five questions that were most predictive of an implant problem. So one of the tricky things with breast implants is that you're dealing with a patient in whom the implant has been inserted. So they can't use x-ray vision or they can't use regular MRIs to tell what's going on with the state of the implant. So you've got to use patient symptoms as a surrogate. And what we found with the PROM that we developed, which was only five questions, which we send out by text message, was that it's more predictive of the need for reoperation than it is for to tell you exactly what's happening with the device itself. So we're working on determining um, whether the PROM is predictive of a problem with the device. And the whole idea of it was that it gives you an early indicator of a problem with the device than waiting for reoperation to occur because there are a number of factors that play into that, including whether the patient has the finances to have a reoperation and whether they have the time. And so uh, we created the problem, we tested the problem, we tested it with surgeons to get their opinions, we tested it with patients to get their opinions. We ran a pilot project with 200 patients and then we ran it out nationally. And the cheapest and most efficient way to do it was with text message. So we use a, a platform called Qualtrics. We send it out to patients. We have a very generic message on it so that it, if it comes up on patient's phone, they can't, it doesn't say, do have breast implants. We say it's from Monash University, it's a health initiative, and can you please open this web link? So it's an individualised web link. They then fill out the five questions 
And one of the elements of that is response rate. So you want to get as close to 90% response rate as you can. We haven't got that. So we followed up with phone calls and with other methods of contacting the patients. But you need to have a really good sample size in order for that data to be robust. So using multiple methods to follow up is the key. It is expensive. So what we're trying to determine is that that it works and then other countries can follow our lead and we are publishing as we go. Amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. That's really interesting and something that I think all registries should implement going forwards and the cost implementation is an important factor to bear in mind. So learning from your experience there is really valuable. So thank you so much. So Claudia, I wondered if I could ask you as well, you've obviously done a great job in putting together quite a succinct, I think, editorial on a, on a really important and big project. So congratulations there in the first place. But I just wondered, perhaps on some of the more technical aspects of the breast implant registries, how you think it's going to be possible to bring them all together? And if you foresee any issues, perhaps with the technology available and the variation that Ben mentioned between the different implant registries at the moment, and then perhaps things such as GDPR or data sharing, if you've come across or been aware of anything from that perspective? Well, I think to begin with, there's a lot of uh, challenges to overcome, but I think having the discussion and hearing out the critics and trying to be as collaborative as we can, even during times like this, could help us learn from each other. And this way we can grow towards each other, to, towards more, well, registries that look like each other more in certain core outcome sets, for example. Initiatives like ICROBRA and this can really help breast implants registries forward toward, I hope, a global united registry style. To back up Claudia as well, just to get an idea about the scope of data is that in the Dutch registry alone is 100,000 100, implants now. And I think uh, Australia, you are uh, over 100,000 and Sweden, you're also in the, in the tens of thousands of implants. So just to answer a question, single stage versus two stage or a simple question of leaky tissue expanders. These are really big, big projects that we've now backed up with tons of data. Mark has done a terrific project with Babette on the one versus two stage where you can really look at differences. Of course, there's drawbacks. The biggest drawback is that everybody needs to fill out this silly form, which takes them five minutes, but it's a lot of time, five minutes between surgeries. We just submitted a, a manuscript, unfortunately not to JPress, but uh, who knows, Andy, uh, with uh, joints uh, of five registries, over 200,000 implants one, in one report. It's massive. So... I think it's really the strength of the big numbers. And Birgit wants to say something about it too, I think, because she's got her hand up. Go ahead. Yes, I would like to comment a little bit because we are comparing our results. And for instance, in Sweden, we are not allowed, uh, it's a strange thing, but we are not allowed to use antiseptic rinse of the pocket. And we are not using and antibiotic treatments in the pocket or in contact with the implant. So it's very interesting to compare our data to international data from the Netherlands, from Australia. And we are serving uh, like a control group in that prospect. And this is very, uh, very interesting to, to study in the future. 
another thing about our cover is that we really pull the starting countries uh, on board. It saves them tons of time. So last year alone, we've been talking with Taiwan, with Korea and many other countries and Germany, Italy, Spain, they're all setting up their registries and each country sort of face the same challenges. It's usually GDPR funding. Most countries have a multidisciplinary approach. We're just lucky little country in the Netherlands that we are, as Mark mentioned, very monodisciplinary in, in setup. But the challenges is really out there where, for instance, in Germany, there's GDPR differences or, or legal difference between provinces. And then there's gynecologists and plastic surgeons and general surgeons. They all get to come to the table. And Ingrid also has a lot of experience with cosmetic surgeons that are not necessarily uh, trained in the same way as plastic surgeons. So that's, that's where a lot of the challenges are. We really try to motivate the world and, and try to tell them our mistakes and how we learn from it. And that's how we really move the world. That's my feeling. And Ingrid wants to add to that, I think. I can add a couple of things. So in Australia, we have three groups that do this type of surgery. And I was brought in as a physician to uh, to work across all three groups so that it brought out that issue of competition or turf wars. It was just not an issue because I was a physician and really didn't understand very much about surgery. Uh, the second thing I wanted to say was that is we have a different approach to mandatory reporting in Australia. There's a lot of support for mandatory reporting from the surgeon perspective. It's an opt-out system for patients, so all patients go in, but the surgeon chooses to be involved with the registry, and that's very much supported by government. They don't want to go down the line of mandatory reporting. And the rationale for that is that if surgeons choose to be in it, they therefore don't feel compelled. They're more likely to have ownership of it and more likely to give good quality data. And part of the involvement and the getting people enthusiastic is that there are carrots and sticks. So carrots are benefits to being involved. So that's the ability to advertise that you're involved with a quality and safety initiative, that you're proud of that, that you get reports on your performance, that you get access to information on um, implant performance and also your patient reported outcome measures. And then there are sticks involved. So that's having to provide reports to the hospital that you work in about your contribution to the registry, that you are competent in your area um, and involvement in your society. Societies very much expect that their members will be contributing to the registry. So it's a combination of different methods. Also, there's a lot of pressure from the government to be involved in these quality and safety initiatives and from medical indemnifiers as well. And so hence we remain as an opt-in for surgeons, opt-out for patients in Australia. Thank you. Yeah, that's a really interesting model. And yeah, all these factors are so important in how we can promote engagement and meaningful engagement as well, like you say, so that people actually take the time and, and complete everything properly. I'll just hand over to Andy now to ask a couple of questions. Great. Thanks very much, Henny. And uh, um, uh, for putting this together, I, I feel slightly under-equipped to give decent questions because it's, it's such an impressive chunk of work, this. So my main comment was just, I just think it's a brilliant job you've done. To, to bring a national registry through is one 
massive challenge, but to start linking internationally is, is just a heroic undertaking, but clearly one that you've been effective with. So I, I don't know if anyone can phrase in webinar terms how you could do this with other topics. Everything else we're doing, reconstruction is amenable to this, isn't it? Um, and a lot of cosmetic work would be as well. So, do, you know, do you think this is well outable for lower limb, you know, combined tibia work, head neck cancer, and all the rest? I think it's a challenge to set it up nationally, as you say, Andy, and, and to link it internationally. It's, it is also a challenge. Mm-hmm. And we like to uh, use the the example of we all design, you all make a drawing of, okay, we're going to design this thing with four wheels and you sit in it and you drive it to go from A to B. And some crazy people put a steering wheel on the right side and some good people put them on the left side. And so who's right? You don't need to discuss who's right or who's wrong. We all design a car. You all have a vision. And so you need to make sure that you talk the same language, you define the same thing. So that was the force behind ICOBRA, that we started with a data set, a core data set was really condensed. And we started sharing databases and principles and carrots and sticks, as as, uh, Ingrid says. And most importantly, we were with a bunch of people that spent time meeting usually half of us in pajamas and half of us drinking coffee and the other half is having a beer because of the time differences. And that's where atmosphere and friendship comes uh, comes along. And that's really connecting people, but also the same vision. You need to sort of guide people through that. So it has part that's really scientific and very dry, but you can make it so much fun. I know Ingrid, you're already waving your hand always saying, oh, this is the best thing about a job that I have, and I want to keep this international stuff going, and, and that's I think that's what we all feel, but Ingrid, please go ahead. Um, I really enjoy the international collaboration. It's enormous fun, and it's genuine friendship, and that's what I think what keeps this thing going, but I think the other thing to remember is there's enormous expertise beyond medicine, so the regulators getting our data set purpose-built for the use by regulators, so working with the FDA the MHRA, the TGA in Australia, they have an enormous wealth of knowledge around devices and the classification of devices and then using IT solutions that come from other fields. And I think it's always important to remember that it's easier to recall a car part than it is to recall a medical device. And we need to be aiming high and learning the lessons from other industries and bring them into medicine. And that's collaboration just beyond what we have, which is predominantly medical at the moment. Collaboration to other fields is so, so important in this space. Two points, really. Firstly, how, how much sooner would BIA, ALCL have been picked up if we've been doing this for 20 years? And secondly, should industry have an enforced buy-in? You know, should there be enforced data sharing? Should there be a levy on all implants sold around the world to fund registries? What, what do you think about those things? Yes, um, I'm positive that we would have noticed this uh, earlier stage because if you look at the, uh, the joint registries, they were able to, uh, to notice uh, the problems with the metal-on-metal uh, implants within 
two years after introduction to the market. So, of course, these the numbers in, in these joint registries are way over uh, breast implant registries because they've been around for so long now and they are they have high capture rates. And um, so, I guess that that's if I see if I look at. How the orthopedics are doing this. This is also one of my motivators that we know that we can do better and that it's worthwhile to do it better as we are currently doing and to try to get more people on board. And it's also our duty to be able to show in a, f- a few years what really the device performances are and, and whether there are differences between different brands and textures and types and uh, indications. Because the sad truth is, we still don't know really you know we more or less have a hunch but we don't have solid sound data and the other thing is the regulators and the governments they are uh, more or less obliging us to at least collect all the, the data on on the implants which implant have you implanted in in your patients so for recall pers- purposes and track and trace purposes and I think if you're only doing this because this is mandatory by law in the Netherlands, then you're missing a chance there because if you have to collect all these these data only for safety issues in, in case of a recall, then you're missing the boat there to be able to really use it as a, a clinical quality registry. I think that's 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 a major difference and and also a main advantage if we're doing this because then we are able within a few years also by doing good research on population-based data and preferably by combining data, especially when you are looking into rare events like ALCL. This is where the strength of iCobra comes in. And because we were able to have a consensus on at least the spine of the data, we all have different rips in our different countries, and that's fine. Everybody can do their own thing. As long as the spine is the same and we're talking the same language, and we can really share and combine and pull the data. And there are many ways around all the, the issues of privacy and GPDR. So I'm sure we will manage this and be able to overcome these problems. And the other question was... Really, how enforced should industry yeah, buy in? Should they be funding it? Should they be forced to you know, have feedback and react to that data <clears throat> every however often? Yeah, in the Netherlands, we try to engage the industry by, we we set up a supplier's registry for the industry. So they register which implants they have sold to all the different hospitals and clinics. And we use this registry as a validation tool to see what the capture rate per per hospital is. So we can can say, for for example, I've registered 80 implants. And then the industry says, okay, we've sold 100 implants to Mr. Moreau. And then as a scientific committee, we can see these data. And so we can approach the clinic and say, okay, what's going on there? And maybe you have missed a few implants. So that's a way of engaging industry. And the other thing is now that our industry is five years old, the data are becoming more and more valuable. The the same is true for Australia and and, uh, Sweden because they've been around for a few years as well. And so we notice this because the industry is now approaching us because they feel that for their post-marketing surveillance uh, purposes, they may be able to use our data. And I think this is where we should try to get the discussion together and to see where we can help each other out because 
I can understand their uh, point of view, and I think we can make a difference there for them. But of course, you have to have uh, reasonable agreements with each other on how the data are handled and what kind of conditions you have. But you know, you can make reports for, on request for them, for example. And then, of course, they can pay you, but that's for a service. It's not that they are paying for your registry uh, to, to make it sustainable financially, because I don't think that would be a wise thing to do, that you are becoming dependable on, on the industry to keep your registry uh, going. So that's why in the Netherlands, we have tried to do this with the use of um, the insurance companies for the insured part of the uh, breast implant surgery. And for the uh, private part, the client themselves is paying. So they get a surcharge on their bill, a registry fee. It's also good to underscore that the registry actually increases innovation, I think, because you get a bigger return of data. If you're an implant vendor or in designer, if you um, choose to use a, re a registry to look at implant performance, it would actually shorten your feedback loop, more or less. At least you'll get a lower number of dropouts. So that's another thing to, to appreciate, I think. One of the extra things, just to comment about the ALCL situation, is that this is epidemiological data, and with all epidemiological data, you're trying to make implications from imperfect data sets. But one of the ways to strengthen the data is to link it to other data sets. So be that discharge data sets, government health data sets, lymphoma registry data sets. You can do a data trawling exercise to see if you can find associations between implants and various outcomes, such as cardiac failure, which was associated with the, the hip implants. And I think that we need to be clever in how we use our data in order to determine whether health effects are there or the absence of health effects as well. So uh, the other kind of elephant in the room around implants is breast implant associated illness, whether it's real or not. Where are we going to get to with use of registries for that? Or is that going to need data linking like Ingrid was just discussing? It's a difficult because it's, it's, of course, it's not a officially recognized illness or entity. And it's very much patient reported. And they have the, the, the feeling that they are ill due to their breast implants. And it's very difficult to, to more or less prove it. And also when you take out the implants and a patient feels better afterwards, it doesn't necessarily have to be a proof. It could also yeah. be some kind of nocebo effect. But on the other hand, we decided early on from the beginning of our registry to just start collecting how often implants are being taken out because of patient-reported health complaints. And we have called this as a uh, Asia in our registry, but reported nowadays as non-verified, patient-reported, uh, non-specific health complaints, just to see what's going on there. We see an increase in the number of implants being taken out and also in the percentage of, if you look at all the explantations, and then the percentage of explantations due to breast implant-associated illness, uh, is increasing. And I'm not sure whether this is a registration effect because we see also as a whole an increase in revision surgery being registered. 
And for us, it's, it's more difficult to really validate these numbers as opposed to the implantation. It's more easy to see, you know, what's been sold and then what's being registered. And so you can calculate a uh, registration rate, but implants being explanted or exchanged or revised, it's, um, yeah, we are very uh, much, we depend on the registration of our colleagues. So that's why we try to engage them as I started uh, this uh, journal club. We try to engage them uh, as much as possible and also that there, that there's something for them in it too, to become better, to see where they stand compared to other clinics or hospitals, and also to become collaborative author on all kinds of papers. But yeah, it's uh, it's better than nothing. And then I think you need case control studies or other study uh, setups to try to find out, or maybe to, to combine the breast implant registry to GP registries or other kinds of health system registries in your country to really try to, to find answers whether or not this relationship is really there. I would like to say we introduced the same variable explant because of the patient reported breast implant illness. And it's very important to see not just the how many patients we are treated in that way, but we are trying to study in a longitudinal perspective, how can we follow up those patients? So breast implant registry is a registry that we would like to see how the implant is behavior in vivo, but naturally our mission is completed when, when the implant is taking out. But I think we should go or discuss in IK how could we follow up those patients that we are registering explantation because of that patient reported syndrome? I think we should discuss that more intensively in our group in the future. And the other thing I'd like to say uh, for the ALCL, it may be interesting to match uh, the uh, incidence in the country uh, to, uh, to a lymphoma register, if that is existing in the different countries. In Sweden, it's is existing because, you know, the ALCL is not registered in the breast cancer registry. And presumably different countries will lend themselves to that process more or less so you know with your personal number you can track individuals really easily over long periods of time in sweden but and we have a slightly less effective but similar system in scotland but england and wales don't i know of the, the folk in the states have a lot of trouble tracking patients once they're discharged is the netherlands easy to follow people as well or difficult we have a national security uh, number, so all patients have th this number. And in, in theory, it is possible to connect all kinds of registries or data, but it's not always possible because of privacy laws. And sometimes it's, it's difficult. It's counterproductive. So we are constantly having these discussions with people from the government, uh, the regulators, other registries we try to to have this discussion and to try to realize the other people what the downside is of 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 course privacy is very important but national healthcare is also very important so these are yeah. sometimes competing what do you call it uh, demands yeah. yes 
Where is, so it's, it's very treatment. complicated uh, sometimes. It's, it's a huge challenge, and this is where the opportunities are for not for surgeons, not for anybody, but really for the patients. And, and we should be able to explain to the general public, we're not after their personal story, we're after their story without their person, but added to a large group of stories. And this is, again, the power of politics and, and social media and Everybody that has a decisive role, even in parliament or a journalist, should, should really think of this. And I think there are opportunities that we can't take now. And I think also there's a European law, but it's interpreted differently between countries. We, as Mark said, we're part of a large registry groups where there's breast cancer registry and breast implant registry. We are not able to say patient with a social security number or, or any other number, X, Y, Z. Did she have a history of breast cancer? What are the TNM stages of this? And that's something that we should all aim for. Which miraculously segues to my final set of questions, which is really around patient engagement and patient feedback and how you, how you see that panning out so that you can, just from an ethical perspective, give those who've been engaged the, the information, but also how you can build for the future that people want to, their data to be involved, want to be more free with health-related matters and pushing these big data sets forwards. I think the Swedes have an excellent feedback system. And, and Birgit, you're probably uh, very good at talking about how you have your monitors all programmed. Yeah, let's say uh, we are giving feedback to our colleagues twice the years about their own data, how they are performing with regard to aggregated data in the registry. And we are giving our annual report and we have online performances that me as my unit, I could see on time how my data are functioning in relation to uh, the whole data process in our registry. So this is the feedback we are giving to our colleagues. And independently, if you are working in a little setting or if you are working at the university. And right now we are importing, uh, we are trying to import, let's say, because it's not already on place, but it, we will start with that, importing data from the breast cancer registry to our breast implant registry. So we are very happy to improve the compliance and giving in that way feedback to our colleagues working just with breast cancers. So this is one thing, and we are working up a feedback to patients, but it's a lot of work, I would like to say, and it's very important, I would like to say, uh, that you have a big steering group helping you for all these kind of aspects, because you have the annual reports for the colleagues, you have the report maybe for interested partners in the industry. You have the report for the patients and for the healthcare system. So there are a lot of feedback to do. And sort of continuing on that, I think in the Netherlands and also in other countries, it should be really the databases should be more or less open access. That means that if you upload data, you have access to the data 
at the national level, at least in the Netherlands. And yes. why is it important? Because this will, if you do it right, you'll get sort of an open access and a constant loop of innovation and ideas. The challenge is to actually get people to do it because um, so far in the Netherlands, we, have, we are really trying to get people engaged and to ask and come up with research proposals, but they're not a lot, but we do, you know, on average, write like four or five papers per year on it. And so it's data that's out there to use in exchange for feedback to the system. And this is part of a very important strength of a system. But I would like to add here, let's say our registry is up and running since 2014. From 2012 until 2014, uh, we had a pilot period. So serious data have been captured since 2014. That means that we increase our possibility to serious data. But I mean, a registry has to be a little bit more major until you're really a source of solid research projects. And that could be our force in ICOBRA that we are uniting our our data, that we uniform our annual report, and I hope we will work on that. Lovely. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a great discussion. I think just to just to round off that discussion, I noted in the article there are a few approaches to how to increase both surgeon and potentially patient engagement as well. And there was mention of a national feedback conference. I wonder whether perhaps even in this climate, it could become an online thing run by ICOBRA as an international conference and just wondered perhaps Hine, Mark, if there's any plans for that or if that's something for the future. Yes, well, actually... Birgit, Mark, and I, and, and the whole iCobra team was planning to meet just before a Beauty Through Science in Stockholm last year. And we're still sort of planning for this June, but I think it's June is going to be really early from now. So we are trying to move it to online. But as I mentioned, uh, the, the successful meetings we've had were very intimate and really open. And um, that was a really powerful ingredient of going to success. So our aim is really to go for a physical meeting, but we do meet quite frequently online. And we are, I think, uh, the early adapters, we started explaining people what Zoom is years ago, and now the world knows. We had a wonderful meeting in Prato in Italy. And I mean, it's wonderful to meet in a webinar and having discussions, but I mean, discussions over a cup of coffee or a glass of wine are so important because the brainstorming is so important to get you some more ideas to work with and enthusiasm to continue. Here, here. Absolutely, yeah. We look, for, we enjoy Zoom and we enjoy these online journal clubs, but the, the day we can meet in person is, is the day we will look forward to still. So, yeah, thank you so much for that. I think it's been a great discussion and we've really got into the real details of the challenges faced, but also some of the solutions and how we can draw on all the success of the earlier individual registries that we can now bring into ICOBRA. I think it's been a fascinating discussion. Does anyone have any comments to make before we close the discussion? A final call to all the, the people listening, especially the trainees. If you want to be involved in the registry, 
be in touch with your national society or with one of the people here tonight. And we will be more than happy to accommodate you or set you up to write a nice journal paper because there's data and there's stories, a lot of them with us. Thanks, Demi. Thank you so much again, everyone. Before we close today's journal club, I think we'll ask Professor Muro and Professor Stark, just if you can tell us, perhaps even unrelated to breast implant registries, but just a classical paper that's really influenced your clinical practice or your research practice to date, or any advice you have for trainees. Perhaps I'll go to Professor Muro first for that. Yeah, it's a total different uh, topic. <laughs> it's about nasal reconstruction. My clinical practice has been changed by uh, Frederick Manick. He's a plastic surgeon in Tucson, Arizona, in the United States of America. I can recommend most of his papers, actually, but I think if you want to know about how to perform a proper aesthetic nasal reconstruction using a forehead flap, then the paper by him in uh, PRS in 2002 about a three-stage forehead flap. It, for me, it was a game changer because, you know, as a resident, you learn how to do a forehead flap, which is not very difficult. Everyone can do a forehead flap, but almost nobody can really reconstruct an aesthetic nose in a such a manner that you know, it's hardly uh, discernible for a, a layman uh, that it has been a reconstructed nose and not your own nose. So I think all the tips and tricks on how to do this, you have to read it a few times, I guess, to really appreciate all the details. And of course, you can also read books, but time is only uh, very little and the paper is a bit shorter. And I think uh, all the, the highlights about what to do and what not to do are in this paper. And for me, it worked. And uh, yeah, we have in our uh, practice a large uh, dermatology unit as well. We're doing 1,500 nose procedures per year, and we are happy to be able to do all their reconstruction. So uh, we see a lot of these uh, patients, and I guess you too in the UK and all, all around the world. So for me, this was an important paper. We'll, um, we'll make that article available for everyone alongside this journal club because it is a really fascinating article and the intricacies to which he goes in um, are amazing. So thank you so much for recommending that. Professor Stark, what, what advice or article would you have for our trainees? Yes, I would like to talk about a complete other field. That is my special uh, field. It's in facial reconstruction, facial palsy. I think the concept and the understanding of facial palsies and late problems in facial palsies have not been understood so well. And I would like to propose the paper from uh, Los Angeles. A colleague, I would like to give you the exact details because I was not prepared to that question before. <laughs> I had a, I heard a very nice webinar in the summertime about that. And I think it's the right way to treat uh, patients with problems with cyankinesis as a late state. And I see a lot of them. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you so much. And yeah, it's great to hear those two articles that you recommend. A little bit unexpected from my perspective, but just reminds me how diverse our practice in plastic surgery is. And that's that's amazing as well, alongside the discussion we've had tonight. So thank you so much. I think with that, we'll close tonight's journal club. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion, starting with Mr. Ben Baker, who summarized the article. So thank you very much, Ben, for that. Thanks, Demi. 
And thanks as always to Karen for your great questions and organising the Journal Club as well. Thanks, Timmy. It's really down to you, but thank you for that. Thanks as always to Prof Andy Hart for your great questions and for forwarding our discussion today so well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks especially to our authors. So thanks first and foremost to Dr. Hine Rakost for bringing everyone together for this journal club, but also for ICOBRA itself and the great work you continue to do. So thank you so much. I would really like to uh, thank Andy. He's, uh, he's a big support in, in our work. The first paper on the Dutch registry was published in J-Press. It was not without a debate. And we appreciate and we, we hear the feedback from society and it's important that we keep those sounds coming in. But thanks, Andy. And thank you especially to Claudia Bargon for putting the, the article together and writing a great editorial and really capturing the, the main points so well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Nimi. And thank you as well, Professor Mark Muro, for again, your great work with Ico Braun in the Dutch Breast Implant Registry um, and for your great comments and advice to the trainees today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, especially to Professor Birgit Stark for, again, your great insights and your leadership from both the Swedish perspective, but also now as president-elect of the European Association of the Aesthetic Societies. We're in really good hands to take this as forward um, as a collective group. Thank you very much for being with you. It was a pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening. See you next month for another great episode. So have a great evening and thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this month's JPRAS Journal Club. Please send your thoughts and further questions to us on social media using the hashtag JPRAS Journal Club. The article discussed today is freely available at jprassurge.com with special thanks to the JPRAS editorial team and our guest author for making this possible. You can also find out more about Plaster and Icoplast on social media and our websites which are plaster.org and icoplast.org. We look forward to hearing from you and see you next month for another episode of JPRAS Journal Club.